Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of this podcast. Today, I have with me a uh, special guest. He's very involved in color timing and has been for a while. He's done uh, feature film uh, color timing and feature film color grading on many major motion pictures, everything from E.T. to Rocky Three to some of the Star Trek movies, Jason Takes Manhattan, um, and the Star Wars restoration in the late 90s. So I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Robert Raring. Hello there. This is Robert. Um, so to begin with, I, I honestly would like to just jump straight into the, the nitty gritty technical. We were briefly talking before I started recording about, um, when he was working on, on Star Wars and, and he got to the point where he was talking about, uh, the machine that was used and the techniques that were used, um, saying that there was a frame by frame crank setup and then a computer that had all the, uh, the information about lighting stored on that. Would, would you mind, uh, picking up with that? Basically where we were at. I, I feel like uh, just that basic information about, you know, going frame by frame and then having a computer set up uh, is, is enough introductory information to let you pick up from where you were. Okay. So uh, what I was describing <clears throat> earlier is that what we use for uh, uh, color correct correction, it's a hand cranked frame by frame and it had a footage counter. It was also connected to a computer that uh, had... Uh, scenes one through however many were in the reel and would give scene descriptions and also carried over uh, the uh, printing lights. And of course that's the most important thing in color correcting in film is the printing lights and where you're at and where you need to go for every correction and trying to balance from one scene to the next so that the first scene isn't all purple, the next one all green, and so on. And uh, most of that uh, color correcting is, is done basically uh, in the color timer's head. Uh, I mean, you get input from a cinematographer or an editor or even a director, and they'll tell you what they want a sequence to look like. And then as you're color correcting scene to scene, that is inputted into the computer. And then when you're through with the reel, you would have it reprinted. And using the new lights, they would make you a new reel and you would continue on until they were, they being the uh, cinematographer, director, editor, uh, was satisfied with the look that you gave them. Okay. Um, so... Whenever you were doing a, a film print, what, were there any techniques that you had for testing, you know, the individual corrections? Is there anything like that with color timing, or was it all, you know, you had to get it correct the first time? Well, perhaps I should start at the beginning of, a, of, of when a show comes in. Um, actually, even before that. Um, usually a cinematographer will uh, contact a person such as myself, color timer and say, you know, here we're shooting this movie and it's going to be, oh, let's say a comedy. And he will shoot tests for 
what he wants the film to look like and what he thinks it's going to look like with his uh, magical, you know, touch on the camera. And so we'll talk about that to start with, and then uh, he'll start shooting the film, and those are considered the dailies that come in, and that goes to the Hazel team. Um, and the Hazel team person will also have an input of what the film is supposed to look like. So he'll do the first night's shooting of dailies, color correct them, and then in the morning, cinematographer will come in and look at his dailies and say, this is pretty much what I like, or this is perfect, this one isn't, so we want to adjust the lights here and here and here. And when he's through shooting a movie, then of course the editor does his cut, and then you have what's known as a work print. And those are shots that are from the dailies. So Color Time will sit down with the cinematographer, and go through each reel, and uh, you'll he'll describe to you what he wants each sequence to look like. Now, in a comedy, for the most part, it's usually bright and warm. Comedies are lighthearted and want to make you smile. Uh, if, if it's like a horror movie, it's going to be very dark. Colors are going to be uh, degraded to uh, you know usually a, a cyan color or magenta and cyan combinations. And so there's where you begin. And then when you get your first print up, you color correct it once, hoping that you're somewhere close to what they want. Have your cinematographer or whoever's calling the shots come in and you project it for them and they'll tell you more critically what they want to change and what they don't want to change. Okay. I don't know if that gives you enough of an idea of where it, it goes, it, but it, that, that's basically the, pro, the process. Okay, it, it kind of does. So it, it sounds to me like the idea was that you would make individual work prints, get feedback on the print, and then readjust for the next one. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But I know I'm being kind of wordy there with all that stuff, but it's just um, trying to give you a background, too, of what actually would go on. And, no, I mean, and that's that's perfectly fine because a lot of the people who, you know, will be listening to the podcast are film students and, and people who are, you know, still learning the very basic concepts. So the, the background information is probably very helpful for this. Thank you for that. Great. Um, then I guess my next question is, um, whenever you got into color timing, were, were you consistently working with essentially the same workflow or did technology over time change your approach? Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you more history. Yeah, <laughs> um, well, when I started working at Technicolor, um, which was back in 1965, um, it, it's, it's a step-by-step process that I first started working on black and white developers, okay? And then uh, Technicolor was going through a change where they were going to shut down their Hollywood plant and open a new one in North Hollywood. And so for I was at the Hollywood plant for about a year, so I was able to see some of the uh, uh, dye transfer process, which was an amazing process, and uh, some of the other stuff that went on there. 
but then I got transferred over to the North Hollywood uh, situation. And so I worked over there in printing for a short period of time, and then I worked in negative developing. And I realized I wanted to, to do something more than just sit on a, a, a developer for the rest of my life. So I started talking to different people that were friends of family and so forth. It's my my father and my grandfather both worked for Technicolor. Between all of us, we had probably 100 years of employment there. And um, anyway, I, I realized that uh, there's a process you go through if you want to get to become a color timer. And at that period of time, um, you almost had to have a degree in mathematics because there's so much math involved. And anyway, um, from developing, I went into a department uh, that they call the control department, which you then learned uh, everything about printing and developing, what it takes to make uh, a print and make it fall within certain boundaries that uh, are acceptable in printing and, and developing. And then once you look at all of that, which you never really learn all of it, but uh, then I was able to go on to uh, work in the Hazel team at night doing dailies. And uh, fortunately for me, a few people realized that I had a, a I guess, a God-given talent. And so from there, I started doing television shows is you have to go through all these steps if you really want to do feature movies. And so I did a lot of TV shows and commercials and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, uh, one of the people in, in the feature department said, you know, I'd like you to try and do a, a feature film. So I did that. Everybody was very happy with it. And that's where I was able to move forward doing feature film. They're very picky about uh, people who do features. And, you know, I just, I was blessed and was able to have a, a, a pretty good career at it. So, um, it, it was a, a long step-by-step -step process. I mean, it took me probably close to 10 years to get to the point where I could do dailies and then start on TV shows. Okay. What, uh, what was the name of the first feature you worked on? Uh, Hangar 18. Okay. Roswell base. I'm sure. Is, is it, is probably it, it, nobody's really heard of it because it wasn't much of a hit anywhere. But it was it was a hit for me. <laughs> okay. Is it is it uh? But is is it a film about Roswell, New Mexico? Um. Let me see. I'm, I'm checking. I'm um, checking it out right now. If you don't mind on on YouTube, so just give me one second. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's uh. Is is it Hangar 18, 1980, MGM? Okay. Yeah, that would be it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. It, it's uh, extraterrestrial Roswell, New Mexico, aliens. You know that kind of thing, uh, which is kind of funny because we have the Area Fifty One jokes going around on the internet right now, so it's kind of timely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. It was more like a. Actually, it was more like a TV show than it was a feature film, but it was actually a feature film that got out in the theaters for maybe a week. Okay. Um. So after you finished your first feature and you were, you know, starting to, to gain experience and work and prominence as, as a color timer and uh, 
you know, working in, in more, more and more motion pictures. Uh, I guess the, the question goes back to the technology aspect. Were you still dealing with, I guess, the same tools that you did when you started, you know, up till, I would say, the point that digital came in? Or were the tools constantly evolving up, you know, before digital came into the picture? Um, well, uh, let me digress a little bit. Okay. And then when I first started doing features, um, we did not have a computer set up. So everything was handwritten. So as you're cranking through a film, you had a, uh, you know, a footage counter and you had a, a kind of like a spreadsheet and it had scenes one through however many and it, it also had the printing lights. But whenever you would make a change, you had to physically write down each change for each light. And then over a, a period of, I don't know, I think it was four or five years, they finally got the computer set up. And that worked really quite well. Um, as far as uh, doing digital films, I only did really three, three films digitally. And uh, that was just pretty much the beginning of, at least for me, uh, digital films. And I know you guys have uh, come a long, long, long way since, you know, back in the late 2000s. And um, let's see, Seraphim Falls was the first digital film that I worked on, I think. Okay. And... And that was uh, kind of an interesting situation. Uh, uh, I went from doing restoration work because I, I wanted to do digital just to see what it was all about. And I got a job at Warner Brothers and I worked there for about a year and then I ended up going over to Pacific Title and Art. And that's where I did uh, Seraphim Falls at. And uh, it was it was rather nice doing it because I worked with John Toll, who he was the first assistant on ET, and so I'd known John for a long, long time. And so to start with, he said, "Well, you know, I shot two different locations, and I need to have them look the same." He, he shot one uh, a sequence in New Mexico up in the mountains, and he shot another one in Oregon in the snow. And he says, so I, I think it can be done. I don't think it'll be a problem, but, you know, do a couple of tests for me and let's see how it looks. And so I did that and uh, it worked out just fine. He was happy. Okay. Um, this whole digital realm was kind of confusing to me because I saw a lot of things that, were really wonderful that you could use as tools, but um, I wasn't real impressed with a lot of the people that were trying to be colorists. I don't mean to be. No, that's that's perfectly uh, that's perfectly fine. I feel like whenever personally, you know, someone who, who started in the digital realm and is still new to this stuff and is still learning, like I wouldn't even consider myself a professional in the field because my money, you know, bounces around between some years. Yes, I'm making entirely, you know, my income off a of video. And then some years it's like, no, I'm having to get part-time jobs. So, uh, for me, I, I, I assume I would probably be included in, in that category and I'm, I take no offense to that, but I also kind of get what you're saying because whenever it went from being 
uh, something that you were physically doing and having to work through almost like a trades guild type mentality of, you know, you start at the bottom and you work your way up. People were just jumping into the top because they had, you know, some minor tech knowledge, not necessarily understanding the themes and concepts and storytelling aspects that, you know, you would normally get by starting on the bottom somewhere, say, as a color timer. see where that would come from um, because you know once again I got started in digital and I know that a lot of it especially like whenever you go and you check out color forms a lot of people are on there to self-promote and self-aggrandize rather than share ideas techniques and learn from each other so I can kind of see you know where you're coming from with that um, I just didn't know that it was it was also that way in the professional spaces in, in Los Angeles as well Um, I'm sorry, I didn't catch. <laughs> oh, sorry, I said I said I I just didn't realize that it was also that way in the professional spaces in Los Angeles as well. I just assumed that was like a, a you know 
pop-up shop, you know, small color house in, in like, you know, Eastern U.S. kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Well, um, you know, I got kind of disillusioned with the whole digital thing just because it's, it's a generation gap. <laughs> hate to put it that way, but there is a, a generation gap with, you know, old film school people like myself and new guys coming in. And uh, some of the digital houses, I, I go over and sit with whoever was going to be doing the digital coloring uh, because some of my contemporaries that I'd worked with over the years would say, you know, we're going through this place and I would like you to come over and see what they're doing and maybe give them some input as to what I want it to look like. And uh, so I would go over and, and talk with these guys and they would start color correcting on a show. I said, do you have any input about what you're doing here? Well, what do you, I said, well, has anybody told you, you know, I want this sequence to be bright and cheery and the next one to be, you know, ultra nighttime, blah, blah, blah. And, well, no, I'm just doing it. So you think you know exactly what the film's supposed to look well, not really, but I'm going to just go ahead and go with it until, you know, somebody comes over here and tells me what to do. And I just, I, I couldn't understand the waste of time and the cost that these people were putting on whoever was making this film. It just didn't make any sense, you know. Mm -hmm. And probably most of that comes because in film, you, you have to make a print color correct, make another print. All that costs money. Well, it costs money to sit in a digital switch, that, and that's true, but it seems like uh, you're going through stuff that you may end up going back to where you started when somebody comes in like a cinematographer and says, well, this doesn't look anything like I want my film to look like. So let's go back to the beginning. So they've got to go take everything out that they corrected and start from the beginning all over again. It just seems like a waste of time and money to do that to start with. And consequently, I got a little disillusioned with it. I mean, that's that's understandable. I, I As mentioned, I, I get what you're saying about it. Uh, yeah. It may just be people taking for granted the fact that they're not having to make prints, and so they, they just assume that it's, it's not wasted time. Um, so my next question then is um, conceptually, because I, I want to start, if you don't mind talking about different print uh, stocks and, and how that affects the overall image. Because one of the, the things that I have learned by my own personal research, just going back and reading, you know, what information I can online, finding old books and reading through that, is that the individual print stock you chose had about as much to do with the look of the film as the negative itself. And so... I was wondering if you, you know, have any input on that. Um, positive print stock does have uh, a certain amount of effect on how a film's going to look, um, but more than anything, it's it's the uh, artistic work of a cinematographer. If they shoot you a good, healthy, solid piece of negative. Uh, a color timer can make it look like anything they want, basically. The only thing that you really have a hard time with in color timing in film is contrast. Um, you don't have that ability 
like you do in digital to just to you know twist the dial and wow your contrast comes up and it looks beautiful in film you don't have that and the best that you can do to try and kick up your contrast a little bit is to make it a little bit darker and that's uh, it's, it's okay if it's a healthy negative but uh, usually you don't want to do that um, to try and kick up the contrast and you know the only reason you're really doing it is because it was poorly shot you know it's very flat film and it's not a good healthy piece of negative okay um, so it does have an effect and, and then there's you know other uh Excuse me, I got the hiccups there for a minute. That's uh, there's fun. other process things that you could do on film in the laboratory. Um, you can uh, you could slow down the uh, negative developing process a little bit, which would give it a little more meat, you know, darkness, I should say, and then Technicolor. Uh, they developed a way of processing that was pretty unique. They called it an ENR process. And what it did is it helped the film to retain more silver in it, which gave it better blacks. And that, that process was uh, developed over in Italy with uh, Vittorio Serraro, who was a pretty famous cinematographer. And uh, I can't remember the color timer's name over there in Italy, but they got their heads together and they, they put together this ENR process. And it's just, it's, it's a developing process uh, on the negative, not in the positive, it's in the negative. And that would give you much, much better blacks. And it also, uh, it changed the color saturation somewhat. And like the reds would, just a hint of magenta into them instead of being a pure red. And some of the other colors would, would be a little uh, different that way too. Um, let's see. There was a movie called Reds, and they used it on that particular movie. Um, trying to think of a couple other shows. Uh, Lady Hawk was another film that was shot to be used with that process. And then, uh, unfortunately, Storaro and uh, Dick Donner, the director on the film, kind of butted heads, and Dick Donner said, well, I'm not going to do that. And he brought the, the negative back here to, to Los Angeles, and I ended up doing the color on, on Lady Hawk. But having been familiar with the process, I could see where he shot... For certain things and his uh, set designs and everything were very different from what would be what I would consider just straight normal. You know, there's so much stuff that went on in, in film processing that trying to remember it all is. Uh, no, that's that's takes that's a little while to pull it out of my brain. That's understandable. <laughs> um, I'm I'm somewhat familiar with Lady Hawk. I saw it whenever I was in uh, film school, but I don't remember that much about the particular look of it, other than a lot of it was kind of muted and in some areas, and then very underexposed in other areas intentionally. And so I was wondering if that's part of the the look you were talking about that he shot for. Exactly. That that would be part of the in our process with his cinematography. Okay. Because he would shoot a certain 
certain way so that, you know, when it went through the process, uh, the blacks would come up and certain colors would come up differently and be more vivid. Okay. Um, I guess my next question then, and this is, this is probably a weird one to ask, but how did you feel about home releases and the color work done on that through Telecine versus what you did for theatrical um, releases? Because I know that for a little bit, at least in some of the earlier internet forums that I found, there were some headbutts over, you know, changes that were made for, for the home release versus the theatrical print. I, I didn't get too involved with uh, uh, the making of uh, videos. Uh, there were a few shows that uh, I did sit in on, and uh, usually with usually with the cinematographer, and because uh, those are the guys that usually would sit in on the transfers from film to video, and uh, they would always try and keep it the same. Then again, they were always trying to fix their own mistakes. <laughs> I got you. And uh, so, I mean, for me, looking at a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot of videos, um, some of them came out great, some of them didn't. Uh, probably the, the best that I can remember right offhand, it was one of the last, uh, things that I got involved with was the restoration of the Godfather trilogy. Um, I, I actually did the color timing on Godfather 3 original. And then uh, because of my familiarity with, you know, cinematographer and the director and uh, the Aspie and uh, Alan Davio actually oversee the uh, restoration on all three of those shows and that was that turned out pretty amazing you know because unfortunately Paramount and I probably shouldn't make this public but Paramount didn't really store uh, the negative the original first one and so there was very little good negative original negative to use and so <clears throat> a lot of it had to be uh, digitally done from uh, even and I the iPod it turned out pretty darn good all three of the shows did um, I don't know uh, I remember uh, seeing I think Paramount eventually did make public the, the state that the negatives were in because I remember seeing on um, news releases about, you know, press releases even about the uh, the remaster uh, for, for The Godfather, about like the condition that the negatives were in and how a lot of digital restoration work was done on top of like making new prints. Yeah. Um, another silly question I have, and this one may be a little too out there, I guess, but do you have a particular opinion on... This is going back to, you know, digital, and I know you're not that familiar with digital, but um, how digital handles density and exposure versus prints handle density exposure and exposure, because that to me is 
at least in my own experience, where a lot of threading the needle in the digital realm comes from is that uh, a lot of the the pleasing and and I guess interesting tonality that you get from making a, a celluloid print comes from, you know, how the density affects colors, how the density affects saturation, and how the density maintains information. Where in digital, it's everything is basically in a line, and it goes from white to black, and it all saturates evenly. And so I was, I was wondering if you have an opinion on that. Um, well, my expertise, if, if you can call it that, with digital is very limited. But um, I, I really enjoyed having the, I'll call it toolbox that you have in digital to adjust different things. And um, gosh, I remember, uh, I think it was Narnia. We did a tr real long trailer on Narnia and the guy from, uh, I guess it was Disney came over and looked at me. He said, well, you know, here we have this scene outside and there's a river running through it the characters are on one side and I, I really would like that for to be blue instead of brown. And I'm scratching my head because that's really not something you can do in film. And fortunately I had a, a, an assistant with me in the digital room and I said, well, what do we need to do to do this? And he's, oh, that's, that's pretty simple. You, see, you just go here and you go there and you, there it is. And I'm going, wow, I'm impressed with that. That's pretty neat. So the tool, tools that you have in digital are really wonderful, but I, I think it's kind of overkill in some of it because I've seen where people, not necessarily me, but I would sit in with them while they're doing you know, their colored timing. And I would see where they would just automatically go to different parts of a, of a, of a scene and adjust it and like you know the, the sunlight would be too dark or too bright or you know the sun's too yellow or whatever and they would they would change that just automatically without without even really thinking about it and I thought you know why don't you just stay with the original intent and I guess that's because in film, that's what you have to start with, is the original intent. The cinematographer shoots it a certain way and then tells you, this is what I want. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you a little story mm -hmm. if you you know, care to hear it. That's, that's perfectly uh, on fine. ET, uh, which was really a big, big breakthrough movie for myself, personally. Um, Alan Davio and I, we spent a lot of time color correcting the whole show. And then we uh, had uh, Mr. Spielberg come over and we showed him the print and he's smiling and happy until the end of the show. And I'm kind of wondering what he's thinking. And he goes, well, guys, I guess we're going to have to go out and reshoot the end of the movie. And uh, Alan goes, well, what's the problem? He says, well, here's the problem for me. He's coming out of the house in that plastic tube, and then he rides throughout the neighborhood. It's daytime. Obviously, it's daytime. And then all of a sudden, we're going up into the sky, him on the bike, and it's uh, the, the sun's, you know, it's, it's like sunset. 
it just doesn't work. And uh, he said, so, Alan, you might as well pack your cameras and we'll go redo it. And I said, well, excuse me, but tell me more about what you want for that sequence at the ending and let me have a chance to go through it and see if it works. So he says, okay, and he told me blah, 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 I want this, this, and that, and the other thing. So what I did, and this is, you know, it was just me thinking about this. And I, I said, well, okay, let's start from when the kid comes out of the house on the bike. And each shot after that, I progressively went a little bit more yellow-red, just a point or two, not a lot. And by the time we got to the sunset shot of them up in the sky, it matched in perfectly. Hmm. So I showed it to Spielberg, and he goes, wow, Bob, you saved me a lot of money. I don't have to reshoot the end of this film. So you, you did it almost, almost like the sun's progressively getting lower and lower each shot, and, and the color is like changing so that you get that, that gradual warming of it? Is that, is that what happened? Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And and to us back at that point in time, uh, it was kind of an amazing thing. I mean, nobody was really thinking on that level to, to do that kind of thing. Although I had done that sort of thing on a few other films, but not to that degree. And so he was, you know, actually both of those gentlemen were very amazed that we were able to do that. It turned out great. And, uh, he ended up giving me a nice uh, one-sheet poster with E.T. says thanks and he signs it Steven Spielberg. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> it worked out pretty good. Nice. But, it, you know, it, it's just the whole uh, thing of working with film is so different in many ways than working in a digital realm. And uh, I, I do appreciate the digital realm, but... To me, even if I see a digital show that's been recently done, if I could compare it to something that's been shot on film, I just, I, I have a total bias towards film. And it just, to me, it just always looks better than digital. And who knows, at some point in time, I'm sure that digital will, um, you know, pick up the pace and look even better than film, maybe. Who knows, but. Right now, I just, I don't see that. I personally, uh, sorry for interrupting. My my, my personal perspective on that might just be the fact that whenever you're working with film, a lot of it is, as you said, you're trying to match the way that the cinematographer shot it, the colors that they were seeing on set and, you know, what they wanted it to look like in that moment. Where with digital, I feel like there's a tendency to make things that didn't exist in the original photography.
because they have a set there that uh, I, I forget how many this pool holds, but they had built that ship that the kids discovered all the gold and all that stuff on. And I went over there and was looking at the set and going, my God, this is incredible. I didn't think you could still build stuff like this. But it was there. I mean, that ship was a whole ship in the water. Mm -hmm. But it was so great to be able to go look at that and then hear that we want it to look just like this. And so when I when I was doing the color timing on it, I did everything I could to make it look just like what I saw. And again, I guess I've just been blessed with decent eyes and, and ability to uh, see color. I don't know what else to say, but um, I just, you know, I, I really feel blessed to have been able to work during that period of time from, you know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the beginning of the 2000s, because there were so many wonderful movies that were made, and I was, you know, really lucky to be able to work on a lot of them. The, uh, I, I'd argue that the 70s and 80s are basically the time period where movies defined American culture. Like, a lot of who we are as a country was made by the movies that were being released during that time period. I agree. Very much so, yeah. There was there's a, a big diversity of, uh, of films and uh, subject matters, and they, I think they were all wonderful. I really enjoyed all of them, the ones that I, anyway, and, and others, of course. But um, like, uh, yeah, part of the movie, as far as I was concerned, um, you know, they shot that all over the world. The, the audio broke up when you said the title of the movie. Which which film are you talking about? Uh, Empire of the Sun. It Empire was Steven Sun. Spielberg. Gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha. That's, is that the one about the, uh, the, the little boy in the World War II? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's the one. But they, they shot that all over the world. They shot over in England. Uh, the sequences that were... Uh, in China, they were actually in China and shot over there, which was a pretty big deal because we were still at odds with China more than we are now. And uh, it was just, it was beautifully shot. Uh, my friend Alan Davio again shot that. Uh, he and I over the years became very, very good friends. And anyway, he would send me dailies from all over the world and, you know, is it going to look? Is it going to work? Yeah. Not, you know, guts in the... In the and, uh, I don't know, I, I really would like to have gone on location on that one, but <laughs> can't, can't get on all of them. But it was, uh, it was a great film. Uh, didn't really do too well because of, uh, what was that other, it was about the Chinese emperor boy came out at the same time as that and then everybody was all excited about the uh, little Chinese boy being emperor the last emperor but yeah the last emperor okay. they came out about the same time I think the same week they came out okay. and uh, so I mean what else uh, Silverado was another favorite 
station with that over in uh, New Mexico, up by Santa Fe. And they built a they built that whole town out on location, and uh, that was that was pretty interesting shoot. Got to meet almost everybody that were actors and so forth on that uh, that particular show. One of my favorite uh, western moves. So, if you haven't seen it, you should. It's a good movie. <laughs> I don't think I have. Unfortunately, westerns are probably the one area where my film knowledge is lacking. Um, just because I grew up after the western kind of died off in terms of popularity, but I've, I've been trying to go back and pick that up. I started with some old John Ford stuff, so I need to I need to look up uh-huh. Silverado at some point. Um. So I guess my my next question is: Are there any particular bits of information or lessons or just opinions critiques anything that you would like to say to someone who's listening that maybe like say someone in college who's looking at you know the film industry and looking at color as a a potential career choice oh boy um i know that you know every everything pretty much is digital even whenever it's printed for distribution it's still going through a, a digital intermediate but i'm just curious if you have like you know any sort of advice or concepts to, to watch out for? Well, I would say don't get too impressed with yourself because uh, there's always going to be somebody else that has a different opinion as to what something should look like. Um, the biggest thing is to be able to understand the nuances that a cinematographer or director is trying to infuse in his film. And, and having a feedback from those people, I think, are the biggest things to, uh, to help you in color timing anything, whether it's film or digital. Um, I would say cinematographers probably have more influence with me because I worked with more of them than anybody else. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just, you know, don't be too impressed with yourself. And try and rely more on what a cinematographer or a director is trying to uh, uh, come across with in their film. Because after all, it, that is their baby. It's not yours. Okay. Um, this is an addendum. I might cut this part depending on you know whether or not it's something that you, you care to talk about. But are you familiar with um, the Academy Color Encoding and how they're trying to push digital more towards the, the way that timing used to work? I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't catch all of that. Gotcha. Are you familiar with ACES color space and all, the, the academy encoding, color encoding space that the Motion Picture Academy is working on, where they're trying to push for digital capture to work the way that, like, um, old printing did, you know, back whenever you were doing celluloid to celluloid. It's, it's the idea is that what is captured on set is maintained and preserved, and then you have a, a starting point that is even across all formats, and whenever you are working with it, you're working with it in broad strokes. So you're adjusting the entire exposure up and down and you're adjusting color channels based on RGB rather than all of the individual manipulation that you get with digital. I mean, that's still an option, but from my understanding, at least in my work with ACES, the Academy is trying to simplify the tools and make them so that your starting point is closer to timing than you know what modern color grading currently is. I'm not real familiar with it. Um... Uh, a, a good friend of mine, Rob Hummel, is uh, 
involved in that process, I believe. And I, I talk to him every so often. It's uh, he's he's a lot younger than me, and he knows a lot more than me too. But uh, occasionally, he and I will uh, get together and talk a little bit about what's going on over there. And I hope that they're able to do something like that. I think it will simplify a lot, a lot, a lot of things uh, between the colors and cinematographers and directors. I think it would be a, a much greater starting point than just, you know, kind of uh, cherry-picking different things as you begin. Um, it, I think it would lend itself to being a far more professional approach to color grading. That's just, that's just my opinion. But. That's 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 a perfectly valid answer. I want to thank you again for calling in and recording this with me today. And for everybody listening, I hope to see you on a future episode.